Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father William, welcome back. So, in the last talk, uh, we spoke of how the consecrated way of life of men and women in the church may be fitted under the genus of monk. And then there are various species from the monastic parent stem of many different kinds. And so, in the West, there are canons, friars, sisters, clergy who follow the religious life, um, and some more freewheeling forms of consecrated life um, in our day. We saw the notion of the idea of radical following of Christ, not just his commandments, but also his counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience was the root of Christian monasticism. We spoke of hermits, or the eremitical way, or anchorite way of life. Uh, and we spoke of Cenobites, that is, those who live in community. So basically two kinds of monks, the eremitical and the Cenobitical, the solitaries and the communal. Um, whether solitary or communal, there is always the practice of self-denial. There is always fasting. There is always silence. There is always renunciation of personal ownership of goods and property. There's always concentrated prayer, meditation. There's always willing service of the poor. Even the solitaries who avoided social contact as a norm would assist the poor with what they had. We spoke of how the early memory of the Jerusalem church was never forgotten and how that holy nostalgia about the early community in Jerusalem would have a strong influence on the kind of monasticism which would later develop under the inspiration of St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 in the North African Roman community. We spoke of how early Christian life, with the possibility of persecution always never far away, was lived seriously, because you weren't going to belong to a group for which you could be killed. And so if you weren't prepared to die, you wouldn't be a Christian. We, be, we observed that once the emperor became Christian and Christianity became the state religion, most people became members of the church, at least nominally. Then monasticism comes to the fore because it is a more literal and more serious full-time way of following Christ whose kingdom is not of this world. We looked at St. Anthony of Egypt and the year 271 when in his Egyptian town he heard a priest proclaim the gospel passage at Mass from Matthew 19.21 If you will be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, then come follow me. We saw how others visited before, uh, others before him left the world and sustained themselves in a very simple life of silence, manual labor and prayer. St. Anthony's life and teaching became widely known 
through a life of St. Anthony written by St. Athanasius, the patriarch of Constantinople. We saw that his life and his words were so influential that literally thousands of men and women followed the monastic life in the desert between the Nile Delta and the Red Sea by the time of his death around 357 at the age of 105. And that's just a couple of years before St. Augustine was born. We saw that Antony's form of monasticism was the principal form in the north of Egypt, while the form developed by St. Pacomius, which we'll look at more in detail in a few moments, was followed in the south. So the north of Egypt, Antony's style of monasticism in the south, Pacomian monasticism. While we noted in closing that St. Anthony's life and character and his role in Christian history sees him justly recognized as the father, not only of monasticism, strictly so-called, but also of every religious life form in every shape in any time. And really for someone to say that, you know, the monastic influence of St. Anthony, you know, is not part of the way our community lives. Well, there's something wrong with the way your community lives, or at least of your awareness in a religious community, if they don't see, in some sense, similar outlines of priorities to those that St. Anthony had back in the desert. Few names have exercised more influence um, at deep and lasting on the vocation of consecrated life. Professor Norman Baines, a noted 20th century British historian of the Byzantine Empire, wrote that the monasticism of the Egyptian fathers of the desert, so these first monks that we talked about, was Egypt's greatest gift to the world. Egypt's greatest gift to the world. And he added, what monasticism has meant in the history of Europe cannot be calculated. And it came from, originally, from the Egyptian desert, spread eventually to Europe, and the great monasteries of the Middle Ages, east and west, were the repository, as we saw, of culture and faith and a whole lot of other things besides. And so what the history of monasticism has meant in Europe cannot be calculated. Before continuing, we need to clarify the relationship between monks and priests. Okay? The monk of the desert was not necessarily a priest. Most monks, in fact, were not priests. Neither St. Anthony nor St. Benedict were priests. And later, Francis of Assisi is not a priest either. St. Pacomius, of whom more will be said shortly, was visited in 333 by St. Athanasius, who was deeply grateful to Pacomius for his zealous defense of the true faith against the Arian heresy. When Archbishop Athanasius wanted to ordain him, St. Pacomius fled. He would not be ordained. Monks formed a different class from the clergy. The clergy stayed in the world and helped the bishop in running the church. Many of the clergy, the priests, were married men with families. For a long time, the difference between monks and clergy remained a clear difference. Monks were those laymen who went out into the desert to follow Christ in a radical way. The clergy were the guys who helped the bishop run the church. Two very different entities. The monk fled immersion with other people in order to save his soul away from temptation and to follow Christ in his radical poverty, chastity, and obedience. 
Now, later, some monks were ordained priests in order to administer the sacraments to their fellow monks. So you had some monks who became priests. Even today in the East, the priest monk is a person distinct from the usual monk who is a layman. So the golden age of hermit life in Egypt ran from around, say, 330 to 440. The first fathers of the desert lived alone or perhaps in twos or threes adjacent to each other in caves, huts or brick-built cells. They supported themselves on the vegetables they grew and the small fields that they kept. They made baskets from palm fronds which they sold to visitors or merchants and with the money they bought the necessities of life and they aided the poor. They spent their time in work, in prayer, in reading, and in memorizing the scriptures. The Benedictine monastic historian Don David Knowles observed that such a life, if it were to be satisfying and fruitful, demanded an uncommon degree of psychological stability and self-control. Their contemporaries were fascinated by their self-discipline, and they told stories far and wide about these holy men who though they were solitaries were constantly being sought after by people who wanted prayers and wanted advice. Some modern writers basing their judgments on their own modern standards criticized the penances of the Desert Fathers. Sometimes there may have been the motive of one monk wanting to perform a feat to prove himself for reasons of more ego, you know, perhaps. Or he may have desired to outperform a neighboring hermit with some great feat. However, the element of severe physical and mental endurance considered as a spiritual discipline was at the heart of the early monastic climate. It was a spiritual discipline for a greater purpose that was the motivating factor. Further, these Copts, these Egyptian monks, with their physique and mentality living in the Egyptian desert, with a very different climate and economic background than modern writers sitting in their armchairs judging these monks, um, they can really only be judged by the world in which they lived. And that world marveled at them and loved them and sought them out and wanted their prayers. With St. Pacomius, who lived from about 286 to 346, we see how it was an easy step from the solitary life to the life of a group of hermits together. He may be called the father of monks of community or common life. He was born to pagan parents. Around the age of 20, he was conscripted in a Roman army conscription drive. Not too happy about that. The officers knew that many of the conscripts were unwilling, so they lived basically in captivity. It was here that local Christians would bring daily food and comforts to the inmates. And these young conscripted soldiers thought, why are these people bringing us this stuff? You know, they don't know us. But they did it for love of Christ their God. And so many of them became interested in who these people were that brought them food and, and comfort. Made a lasting impression certainly on Pacomius. And he vowed to investigate Christianity further once he was released from the army. As fate would have it, 
he was able to get out of the army without ever having to fight. He was converted and baptized. He then came into, into contact with a number of well-known ascetics and decided to pursue their way of life. He sought out a hermit named Palaemon and came to be his follower. After studying seven years with the elder Palaemon, Pacomius set out to lead a life of a hermit near our friend St. Anthony. Pacomius imitated his practices until, according to a legend, he heard a voice in Tabernisi in the year 315 that told him to build a dwelling for hermits to come to. Earlier, St. Macarius had created a number of proto-monasteries called larves or cells where holy men would live in a community setting who were physically or mentally unable to achieve the rigors of Antony's solitary life. So Pacomius set about organizing these cells into a formal organization. And there were men who joined them who were physically well and mentally strong and so on. As we know, up to this point in time, Christian asceticism had been solitary or eremitic. Male or female monastics lived in individual huts or caves and met only occasionally for worship services. Pacomius seems to have created the community or cenobitic organization in which male or female monastics lived together and had their possessions in common under the leadership of an abbot or an abbess. Pacomium himself was hailed as Abba, Father, which is where we get the word abbot from in English. This first Cenobitic community was in Tabernisi, Egypt. Here the monks lived and worked together. Recruits came in floods. When he died, St. Pacomius was the father of a large group of monasteries containing possibly 5,000 inmates. One scholar, Kenneth W. Hall, says at the time of the death of St. Pacomius, there were 3,000 monasteries dotting Egypt from north to south. Within a generation after his death, this number grew to 7,000 and then moved out of Egypt into Palestine, the Judean desert, Syria, North Africa, and eventually Western Europe. And certainly when we talk about Syria, we're talking about the Middle East. And as um, it was being advertised at the beginning by Sabatino, the Middle Eastern church was very much influenced and very much the home of these men. These men lived everywhere in, in that Middle Eastern area. Apart from writing a rule, St. Pacomius organized a very detailed description of how the life was to be shaped. By the time of his death, it could be said that a very developed and excellent monastic order was in existence. All the material framework was set down. There was to be a church, a refectory, an assembly room, the cells the monks lived in, and an enclosure wall around the whole deal. Sometimes that was for protection from crazy desert raiders and other people. So it was an organized and structured life. Also, the daily life of prayer with all its parts was arranged and set down. What psalms would it be said, when, and so forth. The spiritual discipline of poverty, chastity, and obedience was established, and the whole complex was knit together by firm strands of control. 
the Pacomian monasteries were composed of numerous houses within the monastic enclosure. Each of these had 30 or 40 monks in each of these houses within the enclosure. And these 30 or 40 monks were all grouped together according to their particular craft. So the monks who were tailors would all be in one house of 30 or 40. And it was their job to clothe everybody else, you know, out of the 2,000 or whatever in the, in, the, in the big community. So the tailors were in one. The bakers were in another. The carpenters were in another and builders. The gardeners were in another. And those very importantly who kept the water supply going would be in another and so forth. So the, the, the houses within the monastery were according to crafts under St. Pacomius's organization. The regime of the Pacomian monasteries was more moderate than that of the hermitages. And of course, there were anything between 1,500 and 2,000 monks in any monastery with their individual houses. So while there's no wine allowed, no meat, and no oil, but what was allowed was fish and cheese, fruit, vegetables, and bread. Those were allowed. So that was the monk's diet. Pretty healthy. The community prayer of psalms, readings, was longer than any of the offices prayed in the church today, east or west. I mean, all our monastic prayers today would be pipsqueak observance compared to what these Pacomian monks did then. There was a kind of foreman over every ten or so monks, and each house had a master with the abbot over the entire monastery. So in a house of 30 monks, it would be kind of like three foremen with a superior of the house, then the abbot over the whole monastery. So there was structure and order and organization. St. Pacomius himself was abbot of his own monastery, and his monastery was recognized as the head house of the whole institute. He and his successors could transfer monks from one monastery to another at will. So you were in this group of 2,000 monks in, one, in your house of 30 or something. Pacomius knew that you were such a good builder, you were needed at another monastery. He could just say, no, you're going over there now to live because they need your skills. Or you're getting too big a head here, you need to go somewhere else and be a little fella. You know. So there were various ways in which they could move monks from uh, monastery to monastery. At each level, the superior could direct and transfer his monks. And at each level, there were regular meetings for spiritual conferences and advice. So like every week, the 30 or so monks in the house would meet for spiritual conference and talk, review their life and so forth. So there was kind of continuing formation of the monks. In the monasteries beside the abbot, there was a monk, the procurator or minister, who dealt with all material and economic matters, supplies of food and raw materials, the distribution and sale of necessary items and the monastic products that they produced. St. Pacomius visited all the houses, all the monasteries, repeatedly. So he would go from monastery of 2,000 to monastery of 2,000 to, to, to all the monasteries that had come from his monastery. And each year he would visit all of them in his family. And monks could come and speak to him if they had things on their mind or their heart, and he could advise the abbot and the various superiors. So this is really kind of like what a later order will become, a religious order. You can see here, Pacomius has already kind of got the ideas. Twice a year, 
there was a general gathering at his monastery. So they came up at Easter time to celebrate the Lord's Pasch together at his monastery and to baptize any catechumens. So you even had men who were catechumens who joined the monastery, hadn't even yet been baptized. So they all came up and were baptized even at Easter. And in mid-August, all the procurators had to come together to render an account of the year's workings. So there was financial accountability, a little bit of an audit there every August. And that was overseed at the head monastery. Given the time, it was a remarkable achievement of planning and discipline. Dom David Knowles observed that St. Pacomius, with no preceding model, created a monastic congregation which had all the elements that were to be gradually rediscovered and applied by Western founders many centuries later. So here's the beginning of even religious life as we know it here with the monasteries of St. Pacomius that are now groups of monks living in community. During the lifetime of St. Anthony in Egypt, St. Hilarion flourished at Gaza in Palestine. Hilarion was about 65 years old when St. Anthony died. He stands at the head of the West Syrian monasteries. St. Hilarion was born at Tabitha, south of Gaza in Palestine, around 291, and he died around 371 on the island of Cyprus. The chief source of information regarding him is the biography written by St. Jerome, who was the same character that you may know translated the Bible, the whole Bible, from Greek into Latin. St. Jerome also writes a life of St. Hilarion. As a boy, Hilarion's parents sent him to Alexandria in Egypt to be educated in its schools. Here, he became a Christian at the age of 15, attracted by the renown of St. Anthony, who else? Um, he retired to the desert. So I think the folks were saying, you know, he spent all this tuition on him here to go to Alexandria. He's become a Christian, and now he's a monk, you know, in the desert. So after two months of personal contact with the great father of Anchorite, St. Anthony, Hilarion resolved to devote himself to the ascetic life as a hermit. He returned home, divided his fortune among the poor, and then withdrew to a little hut in the desert of Majuma near Gaza, where he led a life very similar to that of St. Anthony. His clothing consisted of a hair shirt, an upper garment of skins, and a short shepherd's cloak. He fasted rigorously, not partaking of his frugal meal until after sunset each day. Um, Hilarion supported himself by weaving baskets. The greater part of his time was devoted to religious exercises. Miraculous cures and exorcisms of demons which he performed spread his fame in the surrounding country, so that by 329, numerous disciples assembled all around him. Many heathens were converted, and people came to seek his help and counsel in such great numbers that he could hardly find time to perform his religious duties. This induced him to bid farewell to his disciples and return to Egypt around the year 360. Here he visited the places where St. Anthony had lived and the spot where he had died. On the journey there he met Draconitis and Philor, two bishops banished by the Emperor Constantius. Hilarion then went to dwell at Brachium near Alexandria, but hearing that the Emperor Julian the Apostate, who was, a Christian, who was not a Christian emperor, so 
the empire went Christian for a bit, one pagan apostate emperor then back to Christianity again. So Julian the, the apostate ordered his arrest. So Hilarion cleared out to an oasis in the Libyan desert. Later on he journeyed to Sicily. So in Libya there in the desert he gets disciples. Then he goes to Sicily and for a long time lived as a hermit near the promontory of Pacinium. His disciple Hezekiah, who had lived long, sought him, discovered him there, and soon Hilarion saw himself again surrounded by disciples desiring to follow his example. He left Sicily and went to Epidaurus in Dalmatia. There, on the occasion of a great earthquake in 366, he gave valuable assistance to the inhabitants. Finally, he went to Cyprus, and there, in a lonely cave in the interior of the island, he spent his last years. It was during his sojourn in Cyprus that he became acquainted with St. Epiphanus, Archbishop of Salamis. Before his death, which took place at the age of 80, Hilarion bequeathed his only possession, his body and scanty clothing, to his faithful disciple Hezekiah. His body was buried near the town of Paphos, but Hezekiah secretly took it away and carried it to Majuma, where the saint had lived for so long. Hilarion was greatly honoured as the father of Anchorite life in Palestine. So we've gone from Egypt, we've had Syrian monasticism, we have monasteries now in Palestine. In the middle of the 4th century, Aphrates, a monk, bishop and prolific writer called the Persian Sage, speaks of monks in East Syria. At the same time, we hear of them in Armenia, Pontus and Cappadocia. Epiphanius, for instance, who in 367 became Archbishop of Salamis in Cyprus, was associated with St. Hilarion, as we have seen, and himself had been a monk for 30 years in Palestine. At the time of St. Basil, 330 to 379, therefore we are already have monks all over the East, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, northeastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, and southwestern Iran. So there were monasteries all over here and large Christian communities. I once um, met a Chaldean Catholic priest who had to leave Iraq because he had baptized a Muslim family. And there was a fatwa put out on him and he was ordered by the Catholicos, the Archbishop in Baghdad, to leave. And so he's in Southern California ministering to Chaldean Catholics. And there are so many of them who are exiles from Iraq because they're Catholics. Because they're Catholics. Some people in Southern California go, oh, what are all these Arabs doing here? They're not Arabs. <laughs> they're, they're actually Iraqi Catholics who have been Catholics since before this time. We sometimes have a very blinkered um, idea of things that we only know about Europe and, and the Roman form of Catholicism. But there are many, many other forms of Catholicism, as we see here in the fourth century, right throughout the Middle East. It's Christian. Besides the institutions, which would later be copied, at least in part, and the rich examples of holiness, the Egyptian monasteries also left to posterity a rich literature of the spiritual life. There are three collections of the short, pithy sayings of the Desert Fathers, the recorded advice of famous anchorites. 
So that's what the handout is there. The first is a, it's sort of a long story, longer story. But then on the last couple of pages, there are some really neat little short sayings of various desert fathers. There are hundreds of them in this collection I'm speaking about. But I wanted to give you a sampling of these this evening. There is also the Lusiac history of the Greek writer Palladius, the outcome of his visit to Nitra and the other monastic sites around 400. There are also the institutes and conferences of John Cashin, whom we mentioned last week as a native of Scythia, and he was able to visit parts of southern Russia and Ukraine. Uh, oh, yes, Scythia is parts of Russia and Ukraine, Azerbaijan, parts of Belarus, Poland, and Romania and a disciple both of St. John Chrysostom of Constantinople and Pope St. Leo the Great. So John Cashin um, is, brings the monastic life further afield. He lived 15 years among the anchorites of Egypt and Syria, and he presented their doctrines to the monks even of Laurence and Provence in France. The rule of St. Benedict is laced with quotations from John Cashin. His conferences were read every night before Compline in medieval monasteries. They were the handbook of many saints, as various as St. Thomas Aquinas or Teresa of Avila. They were still reading the institutions of John Cashin from all those centuries before, around 400. In Syria, St. Ephraim, who lived from 306 to 373, was a monk and a prolific Syriac language hymnographer, theologian and poet. A hymnographer, he wrote lots and lots and lots of hymns because his idea was if people can sing melodies with words of the truth, that's a very good way to beat heresy. So in, we even have some of the hymns of St. Ephraim in English. One of them is uh, translated as virgin, holy, marvelous. Thou didst bear God's son for us. You know, it's a nice rhyming pattern, and, but it's packed with doctrine. St. Ephraim was a prolific writer of hymns, and the idea was to convey doctrine through the hymns. He also founded the school of Edessa with a monastic framework of vowed students and the task of spiritual service for the surrounding hermits. So you kind of have with Ephraim now almost a monastic university, if you like. This school later became the center of learning for the Church of the East. St. Ephraim wrote a wide variety of hymns, poems, and sermons in verse, as well as prose biblical exegesis. These were works of practical theology for the building up of the church in troubled times. Ephraim's works witness to an early form of Christianity in which Western ideas take little part. He has been called the most significant of all the fathers of the Syriac-speaking church tradition. In fact, Pope Benedict XV, in his encyclical letter of the 5th of October 1920, speaks of St. Ephraim's monastic fervor and his influence as a monastic educator. And I quote Pope Benedict XV, Ephraim never left his solitude in Edessa except on fixed days to preach. In his preaching, he defended the dogmas of faith from swelling heresies. If conscious of his lowliness, he did not dare to rise to the priesthood, he nevertheless showed himself a most perfect imitator of St. Stephen in the lower rank of the diaconate. He devoted all his time to teaching scripture, to preaching, and to instructing the nuns in sacred psalmody. 
Daily he wrote commentaries on the Bible to illustrate the orthodox faith. He came to the aid of his fellow citizens, especially the poor and the stricken. What he sought to teach others, he first did absolutely perfectly. In this way, he could serve as the example which Ignatius Theophorus proposes to the deacons when he calls them charges of Christ and asserts that they express the mystery of faith in a pure conscience. End of quote. Syria also witnessed a strange class of solitaries chained to rocks, either in a cave or in open air, and the still stranger solitary monks who remained standing motionless either on the ground or on a pillar. Of these, the most celebrated was Simeon the Elder or Simeon Stylites, that's Simeon on the pole. He lived from 389 to 459. He remained, and I quote the very sensible historian David Knowles, he remained for more than 30 years on his column 30 feet high near Antioch, a true saint who gave to those who pressed around his pedestal wise and temperate advice on spiritual and human problems. Amazing that this is a different era, a different age, and people lived differently. But Simon Stylites was one of the most popular people in the late 4th century. Another important development in the Eastern monastic life was the form given it by St. Basil the Great, who lived from 329 to 379. He is called the father and patriarch of Eastern and Orthodox monasticism. Though he wrote no rule like that of Augustine or Benedict, his conferences and replies to questions were treated as a guide and were quoted as a rule by St. Benedict and others. He formed no congregation or order like Pacomius, but he made his monasteries homes of charity, containing orphanages, hospitals, workhouses, farms, and hospices. In this respect, anticipating the Western orders of the later Middle Ages. St. Basil of Caesarea, or Basil the Great, was born into a wealthy family of Basil the Elder, famous for his scholarship as a rhetorician and Amelia of Caesarea around 330 in Caesarea Mazaka in Cappadocia, now known as Caesarea in Turkey. It was a large household containing 10 children, the parents, and Basil's grandmother, St. Macrina the Elder. His parents were known for their piety, and his maternal grandfather was a Christian martyr executed in the years prior to Constantine's conversion. Four of St. Basil's siblings are known by name, and are saints, according to various Christian traditions. His older sister, Saint Macrina the Younger, was a well-known nun who instructed many young women on the monastic life. His younger brother, Saint Peter, served as Bishop of Sebaste in Armenia and wrote a few well-known theological treatises. His brother, Saint Narcratius, became an anchorite and inspired much of Basil's theological work. Perhaps the most influential of Basil's siblings was his younger brother, St. Gregory. Gregory was appointed by Basil to be the Bishop of Nyssa, so Gregory of Nyssa. Um, and he produced a number of writings defending the Nicene theology and describing the life of the early Christian monasteries. St. Basil is remembered as one of the most influential figures in the development of Christian monasticism. 
not only is Basil recognized as the father of Eastern monasticism, histories recognize that his legacy extends also to the Western Church, largely due to his influence on St. Benedict. Patristic scholars such as the Jesuit father Anthony Meredith asserts that Benedict himself recognized this when he wrote in the epilogue to his rule that his monks, in addition to the Bible, should read, and I quote, the conferences of the fathers and their institutes and their lives and the rule of our holy father Basil. Basil's teachings on monasticism, as encoded in works such as the small Asketion, was transmitted to the West via Rufinus, a monk and theologian, during the 4th century. Through his examples and teaching, Basil effected a noteworthy moderation in the austere practices which were previously characteristic of monastic life. He is also credited with coordinating the duties of work and prayer to ensure a proper balance between the two. St. Basil drew up his rule for the members of the monastery he founded about 356 on the banks of Iris in Cappadocia. Before forming this community, St. Basil visited Egypt, Palestine, and Mesopotamia in order to see for himself the manner of life lived by the monks in these countries. His friend, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, who shared this pilgrimage, aided Basil by his advice and experience. The rule of Basil is divided into two parts, the greater monastic rules and the lesser rules. Rufinus, who translated them into Latin, united the, the two into a single rule under the name of Regule Sancti Basili, the rule of St. Basil, Bishop of Cappadocia and monk. This rule was also followed by some Western monasteries. In his rule, St. Basil follows a catechetical method. The disciple asks a question to which the master replies. He limits himself to laying down indisputable principles which will guide the superiors and the monks in their conduct. He sends his monks to the sacred scriptures. In his eyes, the Bible is the basis of all monastic legislation. The Bible is the true rule. The questions refer generally to the virtues which the monks should practice and the vices they should avoid. The greater number of replies contain a verse or several verses of the Bible accompanied by a comment which defines the meaning. The most striking qualities of the Basilian rule are its prudence and its wisdom. It leaves to the superiors the care of settling many details of local, individual, and daily life. It does not determine the material exercise of the observance or the administrative regulations of the monastery. Poverty, obedience, renunciation, self-abnegation are the virtues which St. Basil makes the foundation of monastic life. As he gave it, the rule could not suffice for anyone who wished to organize a monastery, for it takes this work as an accomplished fact. The life of the Cappadocian monks could not be reconstructed from his references to the nature and number of the meals or to the garb of the inmates. The superior had for guide a tradition accepted by all the monks. This tradition was enriched as time went on by the decisions of church councils, by the ordinances of the emperors of Constantinople and by the regulations of a number of revered abbots. Thus there arose a body of laws by which the monasteries were regulated. Some of these laws were accepted by all, others were observed only by the houses of some one place or area, while there were regulations which were applied only to certain communities. 
in this regard, Oriental monasticism bears much resemblance to that of the West in that a great variety of observances is notable. However, in the East, they're all Basilian monks. In the West, they become Franciscans and Dominicans and Norbertines and so on. But within the Basilian observance, because the rule is general enough, it's possible to have monasteries with different emphases. The general character of the rule of St. Basil allowed for certain elasticity, just as the rule of St. Augustine will serve as a spiritual charter for several different religious communities in the West. The existence of the rule of St. Basil offers a principle of unity for the various traditions of monastic observance in the monasteries of the East. As a result of his influence, through his writings not only on monasticism, but his theological writings, which gave him the title not only of Basil the Great, but also as a doctor of the church, he is one of the three Cappadocian fathers, along with his brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and his great friend and one-time patriarch of Constantinople, St. Gregory Nazianzus. Numerous religious orders in Eastern Christianity bear his name. In the Roman Catholic Church, in the modern congregation of Basilian Fathers founded in 1822, also known as the Congregation of St. Basil, is an international congregation of priests and students studying for the priesthood and is named after him. The monasteries of Cappadocia were the first to accept the rule of St. Basil. It afterwards spread gradually to all the monasteries of the East. The monasteries of Armenia, Chaldea, and the Syrian countries in general preferred instead of the rule of St. Basil the observances which were known among them as the rule of St. Anthony. Neither the church nor imperial authority was exerted to have all the monasteries conform to the rule of St. Basil. It is therefore impossible to tell the exact time at which it acquired the supremacy in religious communities of the Greek world, but it did. So that finally, the so-called rule of St. Anthony gives way eventually so that all the monasteries follow the rule of St. Basil. But the date was probably an early one. The monasticism developed and became more refined. It also spread more quickly. Protected by the emperors and patriarchs, the monasteries increased rapidly in numbers. In 536, the Archdiocese of Constantinople contained no less than 68 monasteries. The Diocese of Chalcedon, 40, and these numbers continually increased. The monks took an active part in the ecclesiastical life of their time. They had a share in the quarrels, both theological and other, and were associated with all the works of charity. Their monasteries were places where studious men could thrive. Many of the bishops and patriarchs, as we've seen, were chosen from the ranks of the monks. The history of Eastern monasticism is interwoven, therefore, with that of the Eastern churches in general. The monasteries gave to the preaching of the gospel its greatest apostles. As a result, monastic life gained a footing at the same time as Christianity itself among all the races won over to the faith. The position of the monks in the empire was one of considerable influence, and their wealth helped to increase that influence. In this, their development ran a course parallel to that of the monks in the West. The monks, as a rule, followed the theological issues of the emperors and patriarchs. They showed no notable independence except during the iconoclastic persecution. 
Iconoclasm is a deliberate destruction within a culture of the culture's own religious images or icons and other symbols or monuments, usually for religious or political motives. The two Byzantine outbreaks of iconoclasm were unusual in that the use of images was the main issue in the dispute rather than a byproduct of other concerns. In Christianity, iconoclasm has generally been motivated by a literal interpretation of the Ten Commandments, which forbid the making or worshipping of graven images. So some taking that literally said we can have no images in the Christian church. Clearly in the New Testament, Christ our Lord is an icon. He is the image of the unseen God. So you'd have to destroy Christ because he's an icon, a holy picture, an image of God himself. As the Catechism of the Catholic Church says in number 1159, quoting St. John of Damasus, the incarnation of the Son of God has issued in a new economy or plan of images because he has become an image in the flesh. Previously, God, who has neither a body nor a face, absolutely could not be presented by an image. But now that he has made himself visible in the flesh and has lived with men, I can make an image of what I have seen of God, Christ, and contemplate the glory of the Lord, his face unveiled. The monks themselves produced icons and firmly defended the use and respect for sacred images. The stand they took in the iconoclast controversy aroused the anger of the imperial controversialists. The faith had its martyrs among the monks. Many of them died because of their um, acceptance and promotion of sacred images. Many monks were condemned to exile, and some took advantage of this condemnation to reorganize their religious life somewhere else, even in Italy. Of all the monasteries of the 4th and 5th centuries, the most celebrated was that of St. John the Baptist of Studium, founded in Constantinople in the 5th century. It acquired its fame in the time of the iconoclast persecution while it was under the government of the saintly abbot Theodore, called the Studite. Nowhere did the imperial emperors meet with more courageous resistance than among the monks. At the same time, the monastery was an active center of intellectual and artistic life, and a model which exercised influence on monastic observances in the whole of the East. Theodore attributed the observances followed by his monks to his uncle, the saintly abbot Plato, who first introduced them in his monastery of Sadducium. The other monasteries, one after another, adopted them, and they are still followed by the monks of Mount Athos. The monastery of Mount Athos was founded toward the close of the 10th century through the aid of the Emperor Basil the Macedonian and became the largest and most celebrated of all the monasteries of the Orient. It is, in reality, a monastic province. It's a whole mountain out in the ocean covered with monasteries to this day. The monastery of Mount Olympus in Bithynia, north-central Turkey, should also be mentioned, although it was never as important as um, Mount Athos. The monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai, which goes back to the early days of monasticism, has a great fame and is still occupied by monks to this very day and can be visited. So that's really all I have to say tonight because there is so much more that could be said, but at least we've kind of moved from um, way back at Antony through Pacomius 
through Basel and um, the spread of monasticism right through the East. If you go on the web, you can go to Eastern Monasticism and just bring that up and there's a massive article there from the, the Catholic Encyclopedia. And there's many references, you know, there's many things to look at under Eastern Monasticism. So, thank you. Thank you, Father William. Okay, uh, just a few questions, Melanie, yes. Okay, so Father William, I was kind of wondering about the icons and writing the icons and everything that the monks were doing. You mentioned last week in the, that in the West that they were doing all the writing of the holy books and everything. Calligraphy and so on, yeah, East was and it, West. Yeah. Was it the same? In the, I mean, was that something exclusively the purview of the monks? or did Well, the very, the very term we have of um, people who do secretarial work, we call the one-time clerical work. It was, uh, it was the work of clerics and monks because they were the people who could read and write. I think, who was it? Was it Charlemagne was very proud because he could write. He could write his name. <laughs> Some monk taught him actually how to write his name and he thought he was big time because he could write one word. His name, yeah. It's good for an emperor to be able to sign, you know. Yeah. Does, that, that, does that answer? Yeah, clerical work, so yeah. How does the number of monks say in... Um, between Egypt and the Red Sea compared today to what it was originally? Well, the numbers. yeah, I, I haven't been there recently, <laughs> but I would say it's vastly smaller um, because you had the rise, especially of Islam in, in Egypt and, um, and so on, and there was a lot of persecution of the monasteries. I mean, the fact that Christianity still exists in Iraq, you know, because there was forced conversion and the whole thing. And, you know, I, I, this Chaldean priest said that as a child he spoke Aramaic, the language of our Lord, at home. And when he was seven, he went to school, they had to speak Arabic. And if you spoke an Aramaic word, the teacher would slap you across the face in front of the class. So he said Islam there for him was always a heavy cloud. So, I, I, I mean, so that, did, that does explain a lot of the disappearance of Christianity, well, not, not North Africa was all Christian. You know, I mean, the Roman colony of North Africa was Christian. St. Augustine. As St. Augustine's dying, he hears the Vandals invading, but then later, you know, it's, it's, it's finished off by the Islamic invasion. So, you know, yeah. Um, two questions, Father. The first one, um, is it St. Pacomius? Pacomius. How P do you spell P-A-C-H-O-M-I-U-S. And my second question, thank you, Father, is in the Dead Sea Scrolls, are any of these communities that you mention, is this reflected in those scrolls at all? No, because the Dead Sea Scrolls um, emanate from Jewish ascetics who were followers of Judaism, um, who lived a community life, who reacted against the corruption of the high priesthood in Jerusalem, which was kind of a sort of puppetry of various other forces. And so the, the, there, there was, so some of the themes are there, like pure religion. So the Essenes kind of went out, in, and then they had celibates too, but they were also married people, so the community did continue. So you had, you had this community, and they think John the Baptist, many think John the Baptist was influenced by these, but there's certainly pre-Christian Jewish, you know, late Judaism there. Question two. Great. Um, Mine's actually a follow-up to that because I was just I was thinking about 
you know, why monasticism and the explosion of that in the Christian communities. I mean, you've got Jain monks and Buddhist monks and this, that, and the other, but it doesn't seem to me that Judaism as a religion really emphasized that. I, yeah. I think that the principal explanation is that the early, the, the, I mean, the real early Christians, and those who were Christians right up to the conversion of Constantine, knew that if they followed this faith, they could die. Do I want my children in a religion for which they could be killed? St. Tarsisius, the little boy, you know, who took the, the sacrament to prisoners and the other kids wanted to see what he had and he wouldn't open it and God, by a miracle, preserved his hands locked and no matter what they did, they couldn't get it and they killed him. And later, I think a deacon or a cleric came and his hands immediately opened and he took the sacrament. I mean, if you, if you, you, you knew your kids could die like that and St. Agnes was a little girl. They said the chains were, when they put the chains on St. Agnes, they kept falling off because they were too big for little hands. And she knowingly died absolutely for the faith. Those saints in the Roman canon, you know, Anastasia and, you know, all those, you know. To be a Christian was to be really, really serious. You know, it was a serious business, but it was joyful, you know, and the community were wonderful. They shared everything in common and all these wonderful things, you know. But when, you know, the whole empire becomes Christian, oh, well, I want to be a magistrate, so uh, yeah, when's this baptism business happen, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'll go, yeah, I'll go to the classes, you know, or whatever, you know, and there was more than classes, but all sorts of people, you know, ran into the church, you know, because now the emperor's a Christian, you know? You know, his sons, Constantine's sons, went around executing pagan priests, and the Bishop of Rome had to say, stop! We don't kill the pagans, you know? That's not our Lord's teaching, there were some pretty rough characters became Christians because it's the, you know, the order of the day. So those who were dead serious about and knew what he said and read the gospel and stuff, some of them just said, I've just got to get out of this rotten society and follow Christ absolutely. And that was the root of monasticism. It was the white martyrdom. Once red martyrdom for the faith had stopped, the idea was that I will kind of give myself totally in that sense. And that's why, as I said Cardinal Hume, the Benedictine, said, there's a bit of the monk in all of us. Because there's part of us that wants to give everything to our Lord. And when we don't, we feel we haven't done enough and we know it. And we're, we're sad at heart about it. And we should be. That's good Catholic guilt. You know? <laughs> Bad Catholic guilt is psychological guilt about nonsense. But good Catholic guilt is when we know we haven't done enough for our Lord. Uh, just a quick question. You mentioned that uh, I think someone wrote a biography of and so thousands of people are influenced by this biography and become monks. Well, could they read at that time? Sure, they could, people couldn't, many people couldn't read. But of course, a person who was very popular was a reader. And we actually had an order in the church, the order of lector. You know, and that was an order. You were ordained as a lector. And so you read stuff. I mean, you read scriptures, you read, you know, biographies of the saints around, you know. And, so, and people, it was, a, it was an oral culture, not a visual culture. I'm amazed by, you know, a young relative of mine in Ireland who knows, who can sing a ballad 15 verses long in, Ireland, in Irish and in English. And I'd have trouble remembering the Hail Holy Queen. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's people in other cultures, much, much better oral skills and memory and stuff. And because this age... People love stories, and you probably remember from your childhood, the most, most elderly of you, 
maybe remember family fireside stories and things like that where different ones would do their recitation or the oral oral culture has unfortunately turned into stupid audiovisual garbage internet you know texting ah, you know terrible it's a total destruction of culture don't get me going on that that's another Father, you, you, uh, I know from church history there was a controversy between some of the monasteries about Arianism, and uh, some were aligned with Arian bishops and some were not. Could you describe that a little bit? Uh, I know there, there was, a, I guess, a, a, some difficulties in that. that yeah, time. well, so it's the nature of Christ, you know. So, you know, is he, is he a, a man that became God? Um, is he all man and you know, no God, or is he God and with the appearance of man, or what is he? And so um, the Orthodox faith is, you know, what we say in the divine praises of benediction, blessed be Jesus Christ, true God and true man. That's the Orthodox faith. But there were various people committed to kind of the Arian position, and then people committed to the Orthodox Catholic position. And so uh, on such a fundamental matter, people will say, oh, well, you know, that's your opinion, this is mine. You know, when it's a matter of absolute truth, there will be division. And, you know, in the gospel, our Lord says, I do not come to bring peace but a sword. From now on, household will be divided. And so that's why there's division in, in, among monks and so on, because some are Arian, some are not. Just like in the Augustinian monasteries at the time of Martin Luther, when he went off and married a Cistercian nun, you know, some of the monks said, good man, you know. And others just said, this, what do vows mean to him and to her and so on? Apart from any of the religious questions, you know, the theological questions, just his behavior as a vowed religious and a priest, but his religious vows upset his own Augustinian communities at the time. So where you have these questions of doctrinal truth, sometimes it will divide. At this stage, there weren't so much arguments about lifestyle. Today in religious life, there's more arguments about lifestyle. You know, if, if I, I have to live in a community of my order where, you know, they never wear the habit, we don't have common prayer, you know, weekend is, means everything off, and, you know, Domino's pizza arrives and everything else, it's a totally secular way of life. I'm not going to stay there. I'll go to a monastery where they actually live the religious life so that I can save my soul and not be an idiot. So, you know, we have divisions now over lifestyle and, of course, theology too, but, you know, in, the, in this, this uh, early level... It wasn't over life. They were all serious uh, about the way they lived, but there would be doctrinal differences which would, would, which would divide them. Thank you, Father William. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>